0: We work on things in our our growth, and that is an important part of getting beyond surviving. Then we move from the soul into the family. As the scripture often does, it moves from the individual faith into the life of the family and then into the life of the world. And so that's the kind of movement that we're doing. It begins with us, what God's doing within us, and then it moves into the family. And last week we looked at marriage, intentional marriage, and today we're looking at intentional parenting. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, let's read these verses together. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, And that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Verse 20. When your son asked you in time to come, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as He has commanded us. This is the word of the Lord. We uh, love a series of children's books in my house, uh, the, the Henry books. It features uh, Henry the Duck. These are books by uh, Robert Quackenbush, and um, that can't be his real name, I'm guessing, but that's his pen name. Um, So Henry the Duck, we have one favorite in particular that's uh, Henry babysits, or uh, Henry learns how to babysit. So this duck is just in his house, and as the story goes, uh, Clara, his cousin, or no, Clara, his friend, shows up with her cousin, uh, a little baby, and she says, can you babysit uh, this, this baby for me? And so... Henry doesn't really know how to babysit, but she tells him he'll just sleep the whole time and it won't be a big deal. And so he agrees, and the baby comes in and and does stay asleep for pretty much the whole time. Well, then a neighbor comes over in the story because they've seen Clara dropping off this baby, and they say, well, uh, it looks like you're babysitting today. Uh, Would you babysit my kid as well? And because Henry, we're told, is a good neighbor, he babysits this baby as well. And the baby starts crying, and then another neighbor shows up. And it just the story unfolds. All these people start coming over and dropping off babies. And the way that it, that it works out is, the way that Henry basically survives all of this is he, he uses something that the, the next person gives to satisfy the previous person. So one baby is crying and needs milk. And, and then and somebody else shows up, and they have milk, but they also have another baby. So he says, okay, I'll take the baby, and, and then he gives the milk to the one baby, but then another one needs a change of diaper, and so he doesn't have any diapers. But the next kid that shows up has diapers, and so he ends up kind of accumulating his problems and his solutions all at the same time. Man, if that doesn't feel like parenting in a nutshell, uh, just satisfying certain needs, but creating problems later down the road. Each pr- new problem is received because it is has some promise to solving the next problem. And so we kind of move into this phase of being in reactive mode where we're always just kind of reacting to the need of the moment rather than able to proactively do anything with our parenting. It reminds me of of A little bit from Jim Gaffigan, the, the comedian, who tells the crowd that uh, you know, he's had his, his fourth kid, and uh, nobody applauds at that. He's like, nobody applauds with the fourth kid. Everybody just applauds with the first kid. But he says, let me describe to you what, what having a fourth kid is like. He's like, imagine you're drowning, and he does this, and then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> and I felt that way, not with my fourth kid, because I don't have a fourth kid, but I felt that way with my first kid. And I felt that way with my second kid. And I felt that way with my third kid. There's always a sense that you are surviving the moment. And how much more is that true right now? When schools have been reluctant to open and all of these things are happening to us in our world and we're having to spend more and more time together and we're in this reactive mode. How can I just get through the day? Survival. There's grace for that There's mercy for this season. This whole series is covered in mercy. But how do we get beyond that to this proactive life where we're showing our children the faithfulness of God throughout generations? Let me just put the vision up in front of you of verse 2. He says this, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons. Three generations Three generations of faithfulness. That's the picture that we are given in Deuteronomy, and that's the question I want us to ask today. How can we create a multi generational spiritual legacy in our families? How can we create a multi generational spiritual legacy in our families? Now let me just give a few caveats as we dive into this, since I know some of you are already probably zoning out. Is this relevant to me? This is going to be a message where I primarily charge, especially the young parents in the room, as we think about this next generation. So, But does it apply to the rest of us? I know that there are some of you in this room who are single, not yet married, maybe you don't know if you're going to have a family, uh, maybe you are thinking that you will, and of course the best time to start thinking about these things is right now rather than when you get into that survival mode. I also know that there are some in the room who want to have children, and so far God has not given you that desire of your heart. And I have been praying for you all week as I look at this text and feel the need to, to challenge our, the parents in the room to ask that he would bring his spirit to you and comfort you as well, because I know that's not everybody's experience of having children, and there may be a desire there that God hasn't blessed yet, and I want you to know that I've been praying for you this week, and I know how hard it is to hear something like this over and over again. There are others I know who are in the room who have maybe gone past the active parenting phase. And as we talk about being intentional parents, it can bring up a lot of stuff inside of us. Like maybe some feelings of regret or feelings of, I wish I had done this a little better. And I want to relieve you of that guilt and shame this morning because the Holy Spirit is in charge of our parenting. And God knew what you knew when, when you knew it. And he is faithful. It gives me so much great comfort, even though I'm in, in the active parenting phase right now. It gives me a lot of comfort to see uh, that there are whole generations of Israel's story where people walked away from God, and yet God still worked in those circumstances. And I want you to hear that God is at work in whatever circumstances, past or present. He is not bound to our ability to parent, to create a generation and this spiritual legacy. I want to address everyone, single, married, young kids, older kids, and say this to you. You make promises when you're part of the church. When we have children baptized up here, which is our practice, I ask the parents a lot of questions and charge them to do the things that we're going to talk about today. But I also ask the congregation something. I say, do you promise to assist the parents in the raising of these children? And you always say yes. Not once is anybody like, no, from the back. You always say yes. So, you've made promises to, be, to help be the shepherd of the children of our church. And so I need all of us to lean into this. How do we do that? How do we assist parents, if you're not in that role, in this calling to create the multi-generational spiritual legacy of the church. Three things I want us to see today that are important for creating the multi-generational spiritual legacy. Responsibility, rhythms, and redemption. So first, we need to take responsibility. What is the responsibility that we have towards our children? We're told in verse 4 through verse 7 the most important things about Israel's life and faith. Hero Israel, this is the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It's the, it's the thing that's said over and over and over again throughout Israel's history. It is the most important thing. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The most important thing is that there is a Lord God, and He is one. And you're supposed to love that Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. That's everyone's calling who follows the Lord. And then he says... Who's going to teach this to the children? You are. You shall teach this to your children. The subject is you. Who is the you here? Maybe fathers in particular. Parents more generally. This is to the children of Israel who have their own children. And the subject of the sentence is you. Who is responsible for the growth of children? Their parents are. Primarily. They are the God-ordained means that God uses to grow up children in the faith. A lot of times we say, it takes a village uh, to raise a child. And it does. But parents are responsible for connecting with that village, which is the church. Sometimes we don't like to put the responsibility on ourselves. We'd rather it be on other people. Maybe one of the most common ways that we're all tempted to do is that other adults or leaders, or coaches, or youth pastors, parachurch ministries, these types of places that we want our children to grow in those environments. Those things have a, a pivotal role in the life of, of a young person, as I can attest to with youth pastors that influenced me, and coaches that were important at various stages. And in fact, the research tells us that many people stay in the faith, Uh, because they have more than their parents. They have other adults who pray for and know their child by name. That's true. But all of that is in the context of parents who take the responsibility for the growth of their children. When I was a youth pastor, I remember uh, people would come in talk about their kids, and they would say, you know, well, when are you going to teach them about X, Y, or Z? Or when are you going to do this? Because they really need this. And it was just a laundry list of things as a youth pastor. And I, what I wanted to say, but couldn't say, but will say now, um, was, look, I have your child for an hour and a half, once a week, with 40 other kids. And during that time, we're playing games, and we're teaching and we're singing, and all the things that are happening right now, and that's if they choose to opt in this week and don't go somewhere else. What is your expectation for the formation of a child during such a short amount of time? Whereas at home, the home is the place where kids spend most of their time. Sometimes we want to put the responsibility not just on other adults, but we want to put the responsibility on the children themselves. We say something like this, I just want them to make their own choices. I just want them to not be forced into a spiritual life. What about this Deuteronomy 6 passage kind of gives you that, that focus of, of parenthood? What I see in this passage is the responsibility of the parents taking these children and forming them into the story that they are already a part of. Not creating opportunities for children to go their own way. Can children go their own way? Yes, of course they can. But the whole premise of parenting is that you know better than them right now. right? You don't give them the choices about whether they're going to school or not. You don't give them the choices about whether they're going to eat vegetables or not. You tell them this is for your good. And so in the same way, you don't give them choices at the beginning of their life for what they believe or what you're going to do with your life, your practice of church or other things like this, what theology is true. They're children. They need to be shaped into a certain way. That's what we are told here. And by the way, just to strike while the iron is hot again, (laughs) the responsibility extends not just to our children, but of course, first and foremost, to ourselves. Because verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your children. The love of the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might is something that dwells in you first that then you pass on to your children. And so in parenting and in the the shepherding of of the children of the church, we take on the responsibility of having a personal life with God that we then shape the kids into. You have a responsibility for yourself and for the children. So number one, take responsibility. Number two, provide rhythms. That's really a good summary of what we're told to do here with our children. And the whole context of this passage is the Ten Commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and also in Deuteronomy 5 they are repeated. We're in Deuteronomy 6, so this is right after the Ten Commandments have been given, the structure of the moral law that that God gave to His people, and then there was a bunch of other statutes and laws that came out of those ten summaries of God's heart. And so that's the whole context of this passage, and so when He talks about the The statutes and the commands that we are to follow, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the moral law of God. So how do we get that moral law of God into our children? Three means of instruction that he gives us in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. There are three domains that are talked about here. Number one is in the home, in the home, when you sit in your house. Now I want to be really careful about this because I know that there's, I don't want to create a legalism in here or in this church where there is a certain thing that you have to do in your homes and everybody has to check the same box. I'm very cognizant not to do that. However, I think this passage, at a minimum, tells us that there should be some pattern in our homes of the faith that we uh, profess in the church. There should be some pattern of the faith that we profess in the church moved into our homes. Sunday-only Christianity is destructive both to, to the parents and to the children, we're not told exactly how you do this when you're sitting in your house. There's a lot of room here and we're not trying to create a certain binding structure or anything like that. What we're told to do is to teach children and to teach them diligently in the home. How do we do this? Well, you can start very simply. In that devotional that we have put together for you, every week there is a, a, a home worship guide. It just... Four or five questions, takes about ten minutes to do. It's a great starting point for you. If you're looking for a way to have God's word in your home more, you can start with that, something simple. Always be simple with these things. What are the things that could happen in the home? Well, what are the things that are happening here today? Sing, read, teach, pray. Really simply, that's what we're doing here today, isn't it? Singing, reading, teaching, praying. Those four words you can use as just a simple guide for yourself. How do you teach? That's not something I feel equipped to do, you might say. Well, there's very easy tools that have already been created for you. Something like the Westminster Kids Catechism. Just a very simple question and answer thing that you can teach through the basics of the faith. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. This very simple question and answer. Teaching the most important things of the faith. This afternoon I'm going to, uh, realizing I didn't have a lot of this practical stuff in the sermon, so I'm going to put together a list for you of things that we've used in our uh, home as well and send that out to you maybe on Monday morning in case you're interested in that. Sing, read, teach, pray. Simple things can be done very easily. Something that moves the faith that we profess on a Sunday into our homes, starting with just once a week, and seeing what the Lord does. The home is so important. This week I was listening to a great uh, audio book called Atomic Habits. I don't know if you've read that at all. Um, A guy named James Clear. Great book. And uh, in it he tells a story of this Polish guy, Laszlo Polgar, uh, who was Uh, A psychologist and this psychologist his mission in life was to prove that genius or prodigies were made not born and so that was like the whole thing of his life and so he proposed to this girl and and told her hey we want to have children and I want to prove this theory and so he married this girl and they decided we're going to create prodigies in our house and they had to decide and debate back and forth a little bit what kind of prodigies do we want to create uh, it could be anything, and eventually they settled on chess, the game of chess, and they decided that their three girls that were born to them were going to become chess prodigies, and what did they do? They set up their home <laughs> for chess prodigies. They put chess sets everywhere. They put uh, pictures of grandmaster chess players, posters on the wall. They put books everywhere, films and they'd started down this road of teaching these girls chess starting at the age of four. What happened? The results were this. Susan, their oldest, at the age of four, could beat most adults. <laughs> Sophia, at age 14, became world champion. And Judith, their third, was the, was the best. They'd really perfected their te- techniques. Um, at age five, she beat her father at 12. She was in the top 100 at 15. Years old and four months, she broke the record for being the youngest grandmaster chess player ever to play the game, beating Bobby Fischer, if you're into chess stats, uh, which I know most of you are. Um, but what do you think about that? I was like, th- what is my response to that? As I was like, re- listening to this book, I'm like, my first response is like, here's a guy who's kind of messed up, right? I mean, he just basically shaped his kids this way and using his kids as an experiment, and I'm sure he was a little messed up. Himself, But these girls, for their part, they actually have a very positive view of their family, and there's no bitterness there because the chess was never authoritarian in in nature. They never shamed them into it. They just created all of these opportunities, and they pursued it, and they actually look back on their childhood with positive thoughts. Now again, from a Christian worldview perspective, I don't think that you should make it your bent in life to create chess prodigies. I really don't. I have no desire to do that myself, even though my son has beat me at chess before, once. Um, but so it's important to do stuff like that, but it's not everything, right? But the thing that I saw there was the importance of the home for shaping identity. It just matters so much. The home shapes. Whatever happens in the home necessarily shapes the way that kids operate. So, in the home, number one. Number two, These rhythms happen on the way, and when you walk by the way. These are teachable moments. There are times, of course, when parenting is more about being present to a moment than being committed to a system, being present to a moment rather than being prepared in some kind of way, and you absolutely cannot prepare for these. Guaranteed, your child will ask you about the problem of evil when you least feel equipped to answer it, <laughs> when everybody's trying to get out the door to church, when you're know when you having a potty emergency, that's when, why does God let bad stuff happen in the world? We'll, we'll come out. That's when they're asked about things that maybe you feel like are beyond their age level. But this is important. When you're on the way, what are some things that we can do When we're on the way, number one, we don't avoid. We don't avoid questions. Because everything that we do on the way even instructs our kids. And when we avoid questions, we teach them that when something is hard, we ignore it. We don't avoid it. Secondly, we're honest. Age appropriately honest. You can say, if you don't know, say, I don't know. If you feel like you can tell them something, but not everything, then tell them something and not everything. Give age-appropriate versions of the truth. This is important as we go on the way. In the home and on the way. Thirdly, in the patterns. In the patterns. When you lie down and when you rise. Verse 8, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In the patterns of our life, rising, going to sleep, walking out the door, brushing our teeth, these are times when we can build in the fabric of our faith into our lives and into our kids' lives. This is not intentional instruction necessarily, sitting down to worship together. This is not necessarily on the way and moments that you're not prepared for. This is how you can create the fabric around your everyday life. One of the biggest examples of this is praying before meals. Uh, Why do we do that? There is no scripture passage that I'm aware of that says you must pray before every time you eat. But why would we do that? It's a great habit to do, isn't it? Isn't it great before you eat to give thanks to God for the provision? But he's provided in more ways than that, hasn't he? When you rise up, when you wake up in the morning, there's new mercies, the scripture says, every morning. And when you think about it, praying before every meal is just as random as saying the Lord's Prayer every time you brush your teeth, or saying um, the fruits of the Spirit before you fall asleep, or anything, prayers before we go to bed, these kinds of things in the rituals of life that creates this fabric. Again, there is no legalism here, there's no required necessities. It's just looking at your patterns in your life and thinking, how can I create this fabric? My dad created this for me when I was about six years old to the time I was about 14 or 15. Uh, He would take me every Sunday morning to a prayer meeting about 35 minutes away from our house at the church that he grew up in. It wasn't our church, it was a different church, and he would take me, and it became this ritual. I was so little when we first started, my dad would wake me up and I would be so tired, I couldn't get dressed, and so he would dress me, he would put socks on me as I was laying in bed with my feet up, you know, and just, this became a thing. We'd go downstairs, there'd be coffee. I started drinking coffee when I was eight years old. Seriously. Let me rephrase that. I started drinking a lot of milk and sugar when I was eight years old with a splash of coffee. Because there's just two mugs there, right? It's part of the ritual. Pour the coffee before we walk out. Put the lids on. I remember it all. Drive 35, 40 minutes. Probably 15 of those minutes would be involved in conversation. Maybe. A lot of silence. That was okay. This is where my calling to ministry was first discerned when I was a young teenager. Feeling like My parents had been praying for me, and, and I knew that, and we talked about it on the way to this prayer meeting then we would come home, but on the way home, we'd stop and get gas, because that's when he got gas every week. I was on the way home from this prayer meeting. Fill up for the week, go in and buy one package of crackers and one can of Coke, and we share them. Every week, probably 300, 400 times, I did that same trek of 30 minutes with my dad. It's just something comfortable, enjoyed, ritual to it. And the focus of the ritual had to do with a prayer meeting. And so there was a focal point that showed us that all of this stuff that we do that surrounds this moment involves a spiritual component. My dad would pray for this church that he had a heart to pray for even though we didn't even go there. And he would meet with the men there and pray. What do rhythms do? Rhythms provide a safety, a comfort to your life. I know this will happen and when it will happen and what to expect. There's a security there. There's also a focus. What is at the middle of those things? And is the middle of those things something of a life of faith? We create rhythms for our children so that they see that this is the most important things. We create multi-generational spiritual legacies in our family when we take responsibility, when we provide rhythms, and thirdly, when we point to redemption. Look at verse 20 with me again. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes, and he brought us out of there that he might bring us into, in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. Do you realize how powerful this is when the Son asks the Father, why do we obey God's law? What does the Father say? The Father tells the story of redemption. The story of redemption. The biggest story of redemption that had happened so far. The Exodus story. The picture, the very picture of God's relationship with His people. That He brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. That redemption comes first. And that is so important. It's the way that the Ten Commandments that have just been repeated before are structured. What are the first words of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. The story of redemption precedes the obedience. Redemption always comes before obedience. This is so important for our parenting and it's so important for our personal lives to understand ourselves how we follow God just as people first of all we do not follow God in order to be redeemed we do not obey his statutes and commands so that he will look favorably upon us he has looked favorably upon us and out of that we obey his commands the order is so important because we have a story of redemption to tell as well to this generation and to ourselves it is our Exodus story we have a better and bigger exodus. Jesus Christ, in living a life that we couldn't live, in dying a death that we deserve to die, in being raised from that death and defeating death forever, in ascending to the the Father, showing His dominion over the earth and sin, shows us that we have been released from the bondage, not of Egypt's chains, but of our sin. And we have... A story of redemption to tell as well. As people first. Everyone in this room needs this story of redemption to be their story. First, God has redeemed you. Second, live according to his commands. But even more particularly as parents. As parents, obedience and requiring obedience is important. The statutes and commands of your household are important, but they're only important in the context that the kids themselves develops a heart towards God's redemption, that the gospel story, the biggest Exodus story, be the main thing, not their obedience, We don't want to create in our households the problem of Israel. What was the problem of Israel? You honor me with your words, but your hearts are far away. You subscribe and you obey outwardly, but inside you're you're distant from me. We don't want the problem in our homes of the Pharisees. What was the problem of the Pharisees? You are whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. can't create that in our families. Rather, the gospel flips that on its head and says we obey, but only because we've been redeemed. And the most important thing there is the redemption first. And then we learn obedience out of that. So how do we do that? How do we remind our children that redemption comes through God and His finished work, the finished work of Christ alone rather than our own obedience. Number one is going to be somewhat controversial. Let me tell you this. You remind them of their baptism and you encourage them towards a profession of faith. Or you encourage them towards baptism and a profession of faith. Here we teach that baptism is the mark that God places on us when the redemption event happens. It comes to adults and they hear the, the gospel message. When you hear this morning that that God redeemed you first and you believe in that story, then you are baptized if you aren't already. And then what God does is He creates families that that are marked by that redemption in that covenant. We see this in the New Testament. When in five different places, every time that there is a family present, every time that there is a family present, when someone comes to faith, they receive the sign of baptism, and they and their household. What does household mean? What is their household? That is a debated point. The word is oikos. It's used exclusively in the New Testament, outside of the baptism passages, to refer to young children. And so how we understand this is that God comes and He redeems adults and then He creates multi-generational spiritual legacies. That's the way He has always worked. And in the New Testament, it is no different. We receive the sign of faith and then our children are brought in under that sign. What does that mean? Does it mean that they have a get-into-heaven-free card just placed on them? No, it does not mean that. What it means is it recognizes that this is the way that God works. As 1 Corinthians chapter seven tells us, if one parent, if one parent of, of the relationship is a Christian, then your children are holy. That's what Paul says. Your children are holy. So we do not treat our children as if they are unbelievers. There is always a distinction between the unbelief in the Old Testament and the people of God and their children. Rather, we bring them in and we do what this passage says. We tell them the story is their story. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. He doesn't say, if you choose this moment to be a part of our story, then this is your story. He says, this was our story. Our story. And that sign, how you knew that you were Israelite, was a sign of circumcision And you know, you're a Christian family is a sign of baptism. Again, I know some will not agree with this, but think about it this, even if you don't agree. How do you move your children towards faith, and when will you recognize that the faith is real? And how will you know? When they reach a certain level of obedience? When they reach a certain level of maturity? That's a tricky road, isn't it? What is maturity? I feel like I'm a different person than I was when I was 18, even though I was a Christian then. Maturity is always changing, but what doesn't change is God's work in our lives. And yes, His work is His mark, but also our responsive faith. And that is important, to bring children to the point of professing their faith, which is what we do when they come of age, determined by the elders. We listen to their story, and they say that this story has become my story, and they come to the table. Where in Scripture do we see this kind of evangelizing of our children? When I look at Scripture, I see instruction of children. Instruct them. Show them their baptism. Their story is your story, is God's story. Can they reject that story? They can, God forbid. But we raise them up saying, this is your story. Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so, is It's true. He does. Number two, though, and less controversial, I hope, show them your repentance and faith. How do we remind them that redemption comes through God and not through their own obedience? We demonstrate our relationship with God to them. You act like you've been redeemed, not like you're perfect. I still hear it in counseling conversations. My dad never said he was sorry for anything. My mom acted like there was nothing wrong all the time. And the tragedy of that is not that mom and dad were sticks in the mud or didn't know how to process their feelings, those are tragedies. But the real tragedy of that is that you missed opportunities to bring Jesus Christ into the family, to bear on a situation. The reason why we are okay in this family is not because mom and dad are perfect, but because we have been redeemed by what God has done. How do you do that? You repent. You confess your sins. Say you're sorry. Admit wrongdoing. And then, faith. Even though I was wrong, I believe that I'm accepted because of what Christ has done for me. You model the redemption that you've been given in your family. And for those who don't have children in this room, or grown children, we model redemption for the children of this church. We practice it every week. Because at the end of the day, that's what the Christian life is. Repentance and faith. Recognizing that you are not enough, and seeing that Christ is enough for you, and believing in His finished work, rather than your own. And when we model that, we create legacies of children and grandchildren, our sons and our sons' sons who believe the gospel and trust in Christ alone. Let's pray.